Welcome to the Adoption Discovery Podcast. Your host, Bridget Bradley, is the founder of AdoptionDiscovery.org, a national nonprofit helping people adopt for zero dollars and in less than nine months for over 15 years. Join us for real support, real help, and real answers to your adoption questions. Welcome. This is um, Thea Ramirez. She's the founder and the CEO of Adoption Share. It's a nonprofit organization and it's designed to bring efficiency and transparency to the adoption process, Family Match. It's a program of Adoption Share and it's the first application designed to leverage data and predictive models to better match children in foster care with foster and adoptive families. Thea holds a master's degree, and she's way smarter than all of us, or she is me anyway, um, in clinical social work and is known for envisioning and implementing big ideas that create collaboration among people and organizations. In addition, she's been named the Young Influencer by Catalyst, is that right? Catalystspace.com. Mm -hmm. And she's been featured and published on platforms such as CNN, Christianity Today, Parents.com, The Washington Times, The Wall Street Journal, and the reason I know her is because of her advocacy. And we met through one of my um, volunteers and donors years ago. But um, she has uh, been involved in innovation and child welfare. She's brought, they brought her to speak at the White House. I have not been to speak at the White House. And the European Parliament in Brussels and the American Enterprise Institute. She's a 2018 Congressional Angels and Adoption Award recipient and had the honor of ringing the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange in recognition of her work in adoption and child welfare. She's married to Lucas, <laughs> which is the best of all things, maybe not today, I don't know. And they have three children. So welcome, Thea. Thank you so Thank much for coming. You. Thank you so much. <laughs> wow. Happy we just, to have you here. the remainder of our time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't help you that smart. I'm so happy that you're part of this today. Um, but I want you to start off, we're going to dive right into everything that the families yeah. need to know, but tell us about this new technology and how you developed it. Yeah, well, I to, to tell you about that, I think it would be helpful for your audience um, to just go back to where this started. Um, I had graduated from Savannah State University and got a master's degree in clinical social work, thought I was going to be a counselor, um, realized very quickly that I lacked that therapeutic edge to patients. And, you know, eight sessions later when I'm like, you know, all you got to do is, or we can wrap this up in 45 minutes. Uh, so it wasn't for me. Um, found a job at, at a privately licensed infant adoption agency in two states, Florida and Georgia, and worked as, as a director in that space for a couple of years. And, and that's really where my whole story began. I didn't know going into that job or position really anything about adoption. Um, I learned very quickly when I got saddled up with, you know, doing home studies for families and um, beginning to work with expecting parents that were contemplating making this decision. But I really didn't know. I didn't have a personal connection to it. Um, I just really thought of it as a, as a wonderful uh, way to expand a family and, and an alternative to um, some other options out there for women confronted with an unintended or unexpected pregnancy. And so, um, uh, so I, I went into it, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, um, babies, I'm thinking, what could go wrong? Um, and, and, and really entered the space and was just gobsmacked with 
um, the amount of reform that's really needed in that space. Um, it's replete with areas of conflict of interest. Um, there's just very little to no transparency in that process. And this is when I discovered it over 10 years ago. Um, you have families that have depleted their 401k plans that are waiting. And the time, I think the quote about 10 years ago was um, 24 to 36 months was about the average time it was taking for families to adopt children through the private infant adoption space. And I realized very quickly that as long as you had a home study completed by a licensed entity, theoretically, so it didn't always translate this way. Theoretically, and as long as you didn't live in the state of New York or New Jersey, God bless those people, um, you could, you should be be considered by any private licensed infant adoption agency across the country, um, with very little exception. And so, um, very quickly, I began to see inroads that could leverage themselves to really disrupt the, that space in a positive way and really bring efficiency and, and transparency for the first time. And so um, I ended up quitting my job. I grew so frustrated that I quit my job and uh, depleted my own 401k savings plan, which at that age wasn't much, but um, was enough to establish really the first national network where we had private licensed agencies that were doing ethical work. And we opened our site up to any home study approved family in the nation that um, already had their home study, but just was looking at being considered um, by a privately, private licensed infant provider. Um, we were not a facilitator. I need to make that very clear, <laughs> New Jersey, if you're yeah, <laughs> not a facilitator. We let the families, and we still continue to let the families network directly with the provider. So they're able to establish their own relationships. We're not hiding anyone in the corner, and we're certainly not charging $3,000 for the privilege of, of uh, being matched with mystery box number one, you know? Um, so this is how our work began, and very quickly, we started to see um, families that were matching within two weeks of having their home study done. We saw families that were beginning to routinely be finalizing their adoptions within eight months of even starting their home study process. So we pride ourselves by saying that we beat the biological clock by a whole month. Um, and it was that success. Uh, it, was, it was that sort of rapid disruption that um, even on a small scale um, was able to uh, pique people's interest and curiosity. And so we had child welfare leaders that approached us and said, can you do for us what you did for private infant adoption? Um, can you help get kids that um, have a goal of adoption adopted that have been waiting a really long time? And so we said, sure. Um, and, and that really, really kind of catches us up to your question, which is like, you know, what is this thing that you've built and, you know, how did this all come about? And, um, and so in answering that question um, for the child welfare workers that were working for uh, foster care placement agencies and that kind of thing, um, we went on a journey of learning. And although private infant adoption is not the same bucket as, as so to speak, as adopting through child welfare and foster care, what we found was actually there were very similar, there were, there were many similarities, particularly around the core problem that we were trying to solve, um, which is basically a complete lack of connection in both. For the private infant, it was just families not being able to connect with the right agencies in a timely manner to get the information they needed to make an informed decision about how they wanted to move forward. For, for the families and the children in the, in, the, in the public space of foster care and child welfare, you have the same issue. You have agencies that recruit and retain their own private pool of families, and they have very little visibility on seeing a family that lives maybe just two inches beyond a county or regional or circuit line. 
And so very quickly we realized like that's a, that's a solvable problem. And so at first Family Match uh, was really kind of created to just be a centralized place, a common platform or centralized repository where we were bringing all these families under one place so that we can see you know, uh, so workers could begin to identify these families. But as we began to build that, I was reading a lot of Michael Lewis and falling in love with like this whole idea of big data and how every other sector of society is utilizing this in a way to advance its own mission and purposes. And I was thinking, if we're going to collect all of this information on families and we're trying to help kind of better match and, and make those faster connections, why wouldn't we want to build this in a way where we could learn over time and actually build a very robust predictive model? And so to that end, we um, procured the former, uh, two former senior researchers at eHarmony to help us solve that problem. And I'm happy to say that um, we've been around for uh, over 18 months now, fully implemented in the Commonwealth of Virginia and the state of Florida. And so we're open for families that want to adopt um, children from foster care. And the kids that we have on our system um, are, the majority of them um, have a termination of parental rights, are legally free for adoption, and um, are just waiting to be adopted. So yeah. I'm so excited. When you say dream come true, I can't even tell you. I mean, the way that we met and the way that I envisioned this all coming together, it's so funny because I was kind of comparing the dating matching system online and I was like, you know, how do people find each other? How do people right. know that they're compatible? How do people understand when they may not be in their neighborhood? You know what I mean? Right. We were right. having the same exact issues with adoptive families and children because I was like, there's plenty of children that need to be adopted and there's plenty of people trying to adopt. Right. Let me get the numbers together. So when the, the volunteer donor um, came to me and said, hey, we met this lady. And I was like, oh, you know, I was just like so excited. So I'm yeah. thrilled that it has actually come to fruition and that you have all the inner workings on the back end, the algorithms and all that kind of great stuff. But talk to me about how it changes the match for people now that are going to use the system. I mean, how yeah. does it change the match of an adoptive family with a child or children? Tell me what that yeah. looks like. Well, the current process um, that is really still the standard um, is, you know, you have your home study and if your agency doesn't have a child uh, that kind of meets your parameters, you're just told to go look for a kid, like literally, quote, go look for your own child. And so by that, they mean um, go online and look at different uh, photo website listings that might be out there. Um, and uh, these are uh, photo listing sites. There's a number of different organizations that do this, um, and they, they feature a child, a waiting child, and have their name and um, geographic location um, and uh, some descriptive information about who this child is. And so it's, it is a little bit scary. A little bit scary. Scary. Sometimes not accurate description. Right. I'm not going to get into all that, but go ahead. Um, so this is, I mean, this is the way that is um, literally connected to uh, even just uh, legislation. I mean, we have this uh, a semblance of the requirement to using adoption exchanges that has been included um, in AFSA, Adoption Safe Families Act, which is an amendment of the Social Securities Act. Um, so, I mean, this, this goes up for a long time. We've been doing it this way. Um, and, uh, and, and so, so you go onto these websites, you click on pictures of kids, and then if you're interested, you would um, just submit an inquiry, and uh, the way it's supposed to work is that someone would uh, speedily respond to your inquiry and say um, <laughs> either that this child is now 35 and uh, has moved out of 
before they might say, you know, thank you, but we just matched this child, or we will consider your family. Please submit your home study. If you don't have a home study, we can direct you to a place that can do that for you. Um, but unfortunately, right. And yeah, so the reality is, yeah. while, while some people um, it can be successful at that, we're just finding, and, and let me actually, I really fascinating, um, you know, all kind of moral judgments aside, when we look at the actual efficacy of this work, um, what's really fascinating is when you look at AFCARS, which is what states are required to report on for their own state child welfare organizations, um, what you find is not that. Um, here. Um, and so what's really interesting is like all kind of moral judgments aside, when you look at the actual data um, from AFCARS, which is what federal, um, what the federal government requires of states to report out on their child welfare systems, um, and you look at the number of kids um, that uh, the, the dark blue line are the number of children that have a designation of waiting to be adopted and the number of kids that actually get adopted year over year, you can literally almost cut those in half. Like we have literally been revolving around a 50% success rate, moving our kids into adoption um, year over year for over 15 years. I know my graph stops at 2016, but even as recently as the last Health and uh, Human Services Children's Bureau, AFCARS report of, uh, I think, September of 2019, we see that while we celebrate the largest amount of kids adopted, I think a total of 63,000, which would put us upwards towards closer towards this 70,000 mark, um, we are still at like a 51% uh, completion rate in terms of those two variables. So um, I, I often point this out because what I've learned, um, Bridget, is that, you know, like everyone is in this, in this field is doing it for all the right reasons. Like we really want to help kids and families. Okay, maybe not everyone, but a lot of the people that are working in these trenches and they're not making a lot of money doing it are right. doing it because they really care about it. So all, again, judgments aside about what we feel about photo listings and that kind of thing, at the end of the day, what I like to just inform people on is like asking the question, like, is it actually helping us move the needle? And by looking at some of this data, it just appears that we're not, we could be doing more. Okay, let's just put it that way. We, there's far more that we could do than we're doing right now. Um, and so anyways, let me, uh, I'm gonna go back to stop uh, sharing my screen here. The question is, how is this different? So in our model, we are literally flipping the entire conversation on its head. Instead of children being marketed or featured for families to click on and browse through, we are actually marketing and pushing families. And these aren't just any families. These are families that have already gone through the arduous home study process and the licensing process. We are focusing on our families and requiring that that placement worker go from a passive role of waiting for the phone to ring to like answer it that you're interested in this child and instead um, to a passive uh, to, a, to a very active role in which now this worker is being shown families all across their state that are home study approved and that are rank ordered by the level of, of relational fit that is um, how our researchers Yes, and, and I'd love to talk. So, so they're able to kind of look at those things as they're, as they're doing that. I'm going to go back um, that that whole situation. So the, the first thing, again, we're flipping the script. We're very family-focused. There's no uh, picture of a child on our system. 
it's all families that we're, we're showcasing to, to the placement workers trying to find placements for their kids. Um, the next piece of the pie is uh, just culminating all of this information in one location and one source, um, which I'll come back to in a moment to talk about how data optimization is really key here and can really only be done when you have a centralized location to do this in. But really to talk about the research behind this, the, the science, the science behind the research and the and the actual algorithm that we're implementing currently, it's all based on <clears throat> actual research. So when I, uh, thanks to Google stalking, prayer and persistence, was able to track down Dr. John Gonzaga and his partner Heather Zutrekian, um, what uh, we were able to do together was really, um, you know, table set that. Um, when you're building a predictive model, when you're building any kind of machine learning environment, um, there's really two approaches you can take. Um, the first one, like a match.com maybe, or some farmers only, or whatever, whatever you put it fill in the blank website that's out there, um, really you, you could basically just so, throw spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. You could kind of just over time, you know, throw things against the wall and pull out things that, you know, over time is showing you that there's some correlation. Um, but with this work, because it relates to the most vulnerable children in America and um, a very sensitive topic like adoption and people's entire lifelong, like the rest of their lives, right? We wanted to start an actual peer-reviewed research. And so for version one of our algorithm, our researchers consulted over 250 peer-reviewed research articles that ever looked at any attribute in relationship to a placement success or failure in both foster and adoptive placements. Um, and so we're using the culmination of that existing science and body of research to form as the basis of our initial algorithm. And, um, and so some of those key attributes are defined here. Um, and the way that it works is as we look at um, kind of culminating this in a, in a way in which we can give the probability of success, like based on the current review of literature that is available at this point. Um, this is the score that we believe is, um, is commiserate with how likely this placement will be to succeed. Um, so the higher the score, the more likely success, and the lower the score, um, maybe more increased chance of disruption. Now it's not to say that every low scoring family will succeed and every high scoring family will, uh, will never fail, but it is to say Say that that based on our current research what we're doing in the presentation of this information in such a way um, that we're showing where some of those pain points could exist for the family where maybe by just virtue of additional training or additional supports they could really be successful if it's not already intrinsically within the attribute relationally of that child and that family um, so to break it down for those of us sure. that are not science oriented <laughs> if we're comparing this to let's say an online dating model, really what it's saying at the end of the day is that this, this, these two people that match together are gonna have a better chance of not getting divorced or dating or liking each other when they meet than it would be for someone that just randomly, you know, threw yeah. the to the wall and said, let's just see what this is like. Which right. we know that in some situations that works, which is what we can probably attest to with some past adoptive families, but we also know it could be easier. We and there's some things we sure. could have found out from the beginning that sure. made the the match and the what we call the um, the what do we call it the Disney dad and the Disney mom like the that that period in the middle when you're getting to know each other and everybody's on the courtship 
Yeah, courtship. Yes. Well, I mean, yes. I, I had someone okay. say to me the other day, um, when you first go out with someone on a first date, they're sending you the representative. And so the representative, um, then about, you know, later on, you get to know the real them, not the representative yeah. of how they think they're supposed to act. And I think the same thing goes on with families. Families are trying to act a certain way because they want to be, you know, matched with a child that of their dreams and everybody wants this, but to have a better match, sometimes it takes just drilling down to their personalities and some things as simple as you're allergic to dogs and I like yeah. dogs and I have a house full of them. So maybe right. we're not a good match. I mean, there's some very logical things and then there's some deeper level things that I think right. your site actually kind of speaks to, which is brilliant and amazing. So go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, you're good. And, and those are really great points. Um, I think again, like the best way, and, and I can give you sort of an example of this. Um, sometimes when people hear the word compatibility matching, particularly as it relates to kids in foster care being matched with families for adoption, um, they, they tend to seem like you know, this is really trivializing something that's super complex. And, um, and, and it's really not. And so sometimes I don't even like to even throw out eHarmony because some people go, oh gosh, like this isn't like a dating website, like a Tinder, God forbid. And no, we are not. There's no swiping. There's absolutely no swiping. You're right. Okay. Um, just to give you an example of the complexity. Um, so for like, for example, um, we have found in the research that, um, like level of shyness in a child, the level of timidity in a child, when placed with a, fa a, a caretaker who the predominant caretaker in that family is female. So this is the individual that will be spending the most amount, the line <laughs> of the time with this child. If that person is a female, particularly, because this is what the research says, so I'm not being gender biased, but, um, and if she does not have, if she, she's not attuned to the sensitivity around how that child forms attachments, um, and um, also, depending on how she scored with how she forms attachments, it's that um, if that woman, okay, um, is uh, super dependent on the I love you moms and the hugs, that verbal and physical affirmation that that bond and that trust is building, she's not getting that. That perception of being rejected by the child can really compound an already stressful situation and put that at risk for uh, disruption. And to, sometimes when I say this to a group of workers, like if we're doing a training, I immediately see heads just like nodding. And they they always say to me at the end, they're like, Thea, you're, you're literally putting, like I knew that in my gut that that was what was wrong with, you know, so, so and so or this thing that I did, but you're absolutely right. And the fact that we're actually, we built a system designed to really not just um, evaluate that and kind of put some weighting on it, but also kind of watch it in progression as we continue forward. The goal of this at the end of the day is, is really you can kind of envision like a revolving door. It's not enough to just say we built a model. Um, the idea behind machine learning, the idea behind predictive analytics is that you're always going to get better and better and more predictive in nature the more data that you have, number one. And the number two, the more you're able to actually follow those placements over time. So in our tool, um, when people sign up to use Family Match, part of the terms um, is that they're actually providing informed consent to be part of a much bigger body of anonymized research. Obviously, we're not linking anyone with specific um, identifiable information, but to um, we measure the quality of the uh, the match. So 
on the back end. So if we said that, you know, you were a 80% match with a child and then you accepted that match and match means on family match that you've accepted to move forward with that child and the team of people working for that child are moving forward with you. That's a match. Um, you know, at that point we're following you until placement. Placement is when the child moves in full time into the home. At placement, our system begins to automate a series of four in uh, a, a series of four post placement assessments that are, are are taken at key intervals throughout that post placement assessment period. So um, it actually follows the the tail on it currently is twelve months, although we are going longer with our families right now because we have the bandwidth to do it. Um, but we're able to then measure the quality of the match, and that is what we're using. Um, it's those outcomes that we're feeding back into the model on a continued basis for its further refinement and iteration. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Some of the families that are listening to this may not understand the post-placement. Um, yeah. so we get into that in uh, Adoption University and we help you understand that you go to the home study, you finalize your adoption, and then there's a post-placement visit, usually depending on the type of adoption, the country, domestic or international, the, the agency that you work with, private or um, the public agency, depending on how you go, there's going to be a follow-up and there should be. And usually it's, it's very helpful. Um, but it, I think with what you've got going, it's even more helpful because we're able to take that information and pay it forward to other families for better matches in the long run. So um, yeah, I think the only time people hear about post-placement is when it's gone bad. Um, when you hear about people putting their child on a plane to send them back to the country they came from. Yeah. Um, you hear about that stuff in the news. You don't hear about um, you know, other smaller issues or things that are issues that need to be discussed, need to be brought out in the open, and we need to be able to um, avoid from the front if we can. And I think that there's a way to make a better match, and I think you found it. So I really appreciate all, you. You, all the energy that you put into this. But um, I, So I see how that changes the adoption match for the adoptive family. Tell me a little bit, just very briefly, about how you think that changes it for the child. Yeah, so the child is always what we're keeping in focus as like the primary beneficiary of having a more streamlined pipeline for families. Like if we can serve our families better and make that experience way more enjoyable and effective and productive, then we know that the child ultimately um, will benefit. And so, um, for the kids, although the children are not um, personally accessing this tool um, uh, currently, we do have placement workers that will print out parts of the, the assessment for our older youth and just sort of go through that list with them and some of the questions and have them give sort of their own responses to some of those questions as appropriate. We also have had placement workers um, kind of pre-vet a few families, like they gathered like five or six and already got the verbal, yes, we would love to move forward with this child, and then presented the profiles to the child and let the child pick. And, um, and that's really, yeah, that's, that's a really incredible um, move. And it actually really, for this one particular um, a young man um, who actually at the time wasn't even interested in adoption when his worker gave him the ability to, to engage in the process and have his own voice heard um, he ended up getting adopted and uh, and it was actually a really cool cool thing well you have to think about i mean a lot of times our families when they come to us they haven't really thought about the child side of things and when you talk about 
um, a lot of teenagers will say, I don't want to be adopted. And they're going through that whole, I don't want to be rejected again. I was rejected by my own yeah. biological family, which is the way they feel sometimes and that may be yeah. their experience. And so to go through that again, is just far too painful. But this also debunks the whole thing uh, that we know is not true, that nobody wants to adopt older children. So when you have five families vetting for one older child and that child then gets to turn around and say, I think this would be a great home for me. Instead of hearing the child say, I'll take anything, I'll take anybody, yeah. um, which is how it's been in the past. I think that shows a lot on both sides, but I really think that's beneficial for the child at the end of the day, because I know as well as you do, as many people as we have coming through Adoption University, there are plenty of people out there, somebody out there for everybody, but mm -hmm. it's a matter of them finding each other and having all the right things come together and to make it really work and work it work well. I mean, gone are the days, I think, of just haphazardly creating families. I think that there's a better way to do it. And I think you found it once again. Um, Thank you. Tell me about how this tool changes things for adoption professionals in general, um, the ones that have gotten to use it, the states that are using it and utilizing it. Tell me how yeah. you think that it's changed the game for them. Yeah, it's definitely streamlined the, the process considerably. Um, we have heard uh, from several uh, big agencies that we work with that um, they really don't bother doing a lot of the photo listings that they were doing before, um, particularly around like just the smaller, younger children where they get like literally hundreds of inquiries and they just don't have the time to sort through. Um, so the feedback from the worker side is that they really love actually being in the driver's seat. Like, yes, this actually demands more of their time because or they're not just picking up the phone. It, but in the end of the day, at the end of the day, they're actually driving the process and can actually manage that time better than just sitting down and sifting through a hundred home studies. Um, so they can target shoot. Um, our tool, Dr. John Gonzaga says this, he says, you know, well, we're not going to show you the family, like the, ta-da, like here it is. Um, <laughs> we, we will show you, here are maybe the first 10 families you want to start talking to. And how uh, does that not save them time when they are looking right. all around their county or in their database for people that have come to yeah. them that, to match with that child? Um, to me, this is lightning speed when you have- oh, 100%, yeah. I mean, time right. not even, I can't even- I, I think the difference, Bridget, is, is the way that the agencies are set up and what their workers are tasked with. Um, and, and we've been able to show this with our data in Florida because different community-based care models like work differently. But agencies that have a dedicated team or staff, um, whether they do it in-house or they have a provider that just focus on the recruitment mm -hmm. for children who want to be adopted, do far better on our system than agencies that just kind of give you a very diverse uh, population of youth that you work with. So if right. I have 20 kids on my caseload and only three need to be adopted and the rest I just got to keep in stable placements or help reunify with their family or get them into the grandpa's house or whatever, right. like what ends up happening invariably is as long as those kids that like are TPR'd and without an identified family are relatively stable, like there's there's really just, unfortunately, it's not that this person doesn't care. It's just that it's not screaming fire. So I'm just going right. to focus my efforts elsewhere. And so that's really when we start to see a lot of um, areas uh, in, the, in the places that we're in kind of bubble up as far as having a ton of kids that don't have identified families. 
Um, it's just that it, it depends on kind of how, how they're staffing that. Do they just have one person or do they really um, have a team of people? So, um, yeah. Do I think, um, in my experience, if we were to take the amount of children off the caseload that were available for adoption, their rights have been terminated, they're ready to be adopted, they just need to be matched and transitioned into a family and court finalization, if we were to take all of those children, and we know there's over 100,000 just in the U.S., then we would not have to be begging for more foster parents because those children are most likely residing with a foster parent and taking up a foster placement where they could put a foster child that is waiting to find out whether they're going to go back home or whether they're going to go with relative or yeah. what the situation is with their parents. So I've tried to explain this on many occasions to many different caseworkers in different states is that if you would just stop for just a minute <laughs> and get this child adopted, because I know the families are out there wanting to adopt them and yeah. make that match. But I also understand that they didn't have this tool before. So it was very random and haphazard and they have a, a heart for making these children have a good match. And that's hard to do when you may only have a couple files on your desk of potential right. families in your county or your small town, as opposed to a large city where they have stacks and stacks. But that yeah. also means they probably have more than 30 kids or 30, you know, potentials on their, in their caseload that they're trying to go out and make the visits and do the paperwork and write the reports and take them to doctor's visits and all the kind of stuff that we know they have to do. To me, a state would look at this as a complete efficiency driver yeah. to getting the children off of their roster that can be adopted. And I know they like to brag about, we had so many children available for adoption and this many got adopted and there's gotta be yeah. funding tied to that. I wish that there were more funding tied to getting those children placed quickly in every state. Um, I think that motivation would be great because it would help the children that were not available for adoption yeah. be able to get the best possible care and placement if all the time wasn't spent divided. So yeah, um, yeah I see great things on all sides. I haven't seen enough yeah. yet. Um, so I'm really looking forward to what the future holds for this. So is there a way? Join us in the next episode as we continue this conversation with Thea Ramirez about new matching technology. Thank you for joining us and make sure you tell your friends and make sure that you subscribe and review. Join us for a life-changing experience. Just go to adoptiondiscovery.org today for more information about how to make your adoption easier. Join like-minded people and learn about new and innovative ways to adopt. We look forward to celebrating adoption with you. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And please, share Adoption Discovery with everyone you know.